0: Well, today we are continuing our lesson on God's covenant by focusing today primarily on the covenant of redemption. Over the last couple of weeks, we have went on this journey discussing God's covenant with man, looking at it primarily as we see it in our confession of faith, chapter seven. And if you remember two weeks ago, I talked and discussed about the importance of understanding this doctrine. And last week I was a little bit more technical and we got into the nitty gritty as it pertains to what covenants were, the different types of covenants and the essential elements of the covenants. We also talked about briefly about that overarching covenant and within that, the covenants of works and covenant of grace. So as I mentioned today, what I want to do is take time to discuss primarily the covenant of redemption that overarching covenant that helps to shape all the others that we'll be looking at for the next couple of weeks. Now, if you recall, a couple of months ago, I taught on the doctrine of God. And one of the lessons I talked on was, of course, the Trinity. And I mentioned in that, that the Bible affirms that all three members are the same as substance and equal in power and glory. This is something that we recite every Lord's day and we all affirm. There is no gradation and power and hierarchy when dealing with the Trinity from an ontological standpoint, or in other words, as it pertains to his being. However, we also see when we read the scriptures, how each member of the Trinity seems to be acting out different roles when it comes to salvation. When we read the Bible, we notice that the father seems to be doing something different from what the son does and the son And the Holy Spirit, excuse me, doing something different from what the Father and the Son do. But yet we also note how in the difference of the roles, there also still appears to be a unity as it pertains to the goal, the executed goal. So how do we reconcile all of this and try to understand it? Now this is where the understanding of the covenant of redemption becomes important. Because it is that covenant that we read about that we see being established by the Godhead before the foundations of the world and we see being executed in time and space. As I mentioned last week, it's that overarching covenant that helps to shape the other covenants that we'll be discussing later on, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So by way of definition, when we talk about God's covenant of redemption, we mean this, it's an agreement primarily between the father and the Son, made before the world was created, where the Father set apart a people for whom Christ, who was sent by the Father, would be the head and redeemer of. Christ, in turn, would do all that was necessary to secure the redemption of that elect people. Now, if you remember from last week, I had mentioned the fact that sometimes people tend to get up in arms when it appears as though we are import- importing something foreign to the Bible. And to be fair, nothing wrong with being concerned in regards to that. Because the last thing that we want to do is impose doctrine on the Bible. We're not trying to eisegete here. We're not trying to impose something that the Bible doesn't teach. We're trying to draw out truth. So it's fair if there's concern in regards to an importing of something that's foreign to the Bible. But with that being said, that is not what we are doing as it pertains to this. I also argued last week that oftentimes there are teachings that are stated that are not expressly stated, but implied that we have to see through deduction. For example, this is how we derive of the teaching of the Trinity. You know, we don't find any express statements in the scripture that states the proposition that there is one God who exists in three persons. But through all the verses that we read in the Bible, we see that the Bible clearly implies that truth and that fact. Likewise, when we read the scriptures and we search the pages of the Bible, what's clearly implied is the understanding of a pre-creation agreement between the father and the son. When we look at, for example, in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six, we read Paul telling us this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in these verses, we see a clear definition that the elect were chosen before the world was created. Not only were the elect chosen, but they were chosen in Christ. Now, if you also recall from last week, I've stated that there are three essential elements or properties that make something a covenant. You have the contracted parties, you have the stipulations or the requirements, and then you have the promises. If we find these elements in the scriptures as it pertains to a pre-creation arrangement dealing with redemption, then we have a covenant. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of this lesson is look through the scriptures to see if we don't find those elements contained within the scriptures. Let's start first with the contracted parties. Are there verses that speak of some arrangement between God the Father and God the Son? John four, verse 34, we read this. Jesus said to them, them being his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then we see in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 39, this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In both of these passages here, we see Jesus talking about the fact that he was sent to accomplish some work. There was a purpose that Christ had to fulfill and he was sent to do that. So I want you to think through that for one second. If someone says that they were sent to do something, see that at the very least points to some sort of agreement between two parties. If that wasn't the case, there would be no reason for someone to say that they were sent being sent implies an agreement by more than one party. For example, if you find me at Publix purchasing something and you come up to me and I tell you I was sent to buy toothpaste and you, and you ask me, well, who sent you? Now if I said, well, no one sent me, then you would look at me crazy because I literally just said I was sent. If I was sent, of course that means that someone sent me. So again, being sent implies multiple parties. Now, that being said, these verses alone does not mean that a covenant has been established, but it does at the very least point to one of the elements, the fact that we have contracting parties. So again, so we can see from the text that there is some agreement between the father and the son, evidenced by the fact that again, the son was sent. What about those stipulations, the requirements? Do we see in the Bible any indication of that fact? Well, let's take a look at a couple of passages that I believe highlight this. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. We see Jesus saying, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see in this passage, Jesus Christ clearly indicating that he came to fulfill specific requirements. One of those requirements was to die for sins. He did not come into the world to be served, but to fulfill that which he was commissioned to do. And then we see in John chapter 12, verses 27, Jesus saying this, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So now we see in this passage, the time coming where Jesus was going to be betrayed and subsequently executed. Now, this was something obviously that he wasn't looking forward to. But in obedience, we see Jesus stating that for this purpose, he came for that reason. There was something that he was required to do. And even though it would be excruciating to endure, he knew that that was what he was sent to do. He was sent to do his father's will. Like he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then we have Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 18. Jesus telling us this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In this passage, we have another indicator that Christ was sent to do something. Jesus indicates that he was sent not to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. So we see from just a few of these passages here, the Bible really does show us that there were requirements that Christ was sent to complete. And what we notice is that those requirements are all tied to our redemption. Louis Burkhoff summarizes this in his systematic theology as it pertains to Christ's requirements in this way. He writes this, the father required of the son who appeared in this covenant as the surety and head of his people and as the last Adam, that he should make amends for the sin of Adam and of those whom the father had given him and should do what Adam failed to do by keeping the law and thus securing eternal life for all his spiritual progeny. So what Louis Burkhoff notes here is what we see in the scriptures. It's what we just read. We just saw in Matthew 5 verse 17 through 18, Jesus saying that he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. He had to keep the law's demands. Why? You know, Adam sinned. And as a result, all of his descendants are stained with sin. As a result of that, no man, no person is able to perfectly keep the law of God. Therefore, in the covenant of redemption, the father sends the son to accomplish what has been impossible for man to do. And the son agrees to do that very thing. We also just saw in Matthew 20, verse 28, when Jesus said he was sent to give his life as a ransom for his people. Everyone knows John three sixteen is one of those passages that even non-Christians could probably recite. But I want you to look at the context, the verses surrounding this very popular passage, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then The famous passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, it was not just that he had to keep all of God's law. Sin had to be dealt with because he had no sin of his own being Christ to deal with that enabled him to, be, to serve as the perfect substitute. Jesus, as he says, had to be lifted up. He had to die for our sins. Not only that, because Jesus was sinless, his righteousness can be placed on us. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God, the Father, had to take Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? so that we might be able to be made the righteousness of God in him. So clearly, the Bible does show us that Jesus Christ was not just sent by God, but that he was sent to accomplish all that was required in order to secure our redemption. So there goes element two. So we see the parties involved, and then we see those requirements, the stipulations laid out in the scriptures. What about those promises? Is there anywhere in the scriptures that we see promises being made or being given? Here's a couple, Psalm chapter two, verses seven and eight. I will tell her the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. We see in this Psalm, the father promising to give his begotten son, Jesus, the nations to rule and the world to possess. And then we see in another well-known passage, Psalm 110, David saying this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Just like we saw in Psalm chapter two. We see here in Psalm 110, God the Father telling God the Son to sit at his right hand. God has promised to exalt Christ and set him as king to rule. He not only will rule, but he will also be a priest forever. The Father has sworn, he's promised, and he will not change his mind. Now, some of you might be thinking as I bring up these two passages, okay, JP, I, I see that there are promises made to the Son, but what do those promises that you're giving in those verses have to do with the covenant of redemption? Well, let's take a look at Philippians chapter two, verses eight through 11, and see what Paul tells us. Paul writes in, again, Philippians chapter two, verses eight through 11, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So in this passage, emphasizing both the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, we see the promise of Jesus being exalted, tied to his dying for our sins. Because Jesus kept the requirement, God kept his promise. He exalted Christ to his right hand and gave him the nations as his heritage. We also see in the high priestly prayer that Jesus gives in John chapter 17, this, and we'll just read the first five verses. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, all the different elements within the covenant being stated. The two parties, the Father and the Son, talking, praying, Jesus praying to the Father himself, him indicating the requirements, the things that he had fulfilled, and then afterwards, him asking God now to glorify him with the glory that he had in the beginning, being that, of course, he was God. So we see in this passage all three elements being highlighted. So we can see now from the biblical data here, that there was some predetermined arrangement between the father and the son. The son agrees to accomplish certain requirements and promises are given on the accomplishments of those requirements. Those are the three essential elements to a covenant. And if we have the elements to a covenant, guess what we have? We have a covenant. As Charles Hodge says in his systematic theology, when one person assigns a stipulated work to another person with the promise of a reward upon the condition of the performance of that work, there is a covenant. Nothing can be plainer than that all this is true in relation to the father and the son. The father gave the son a work to do. He sent him into the world to perform it and promised him a great reward when the work was accomplished. We have, therefore, the contracting parties, the promise, and the condition. These are the essential elements of a covenant. So we see clearly through the scriptures itself the fact that there is a covenant that was entered into, a covenant of redemption as we call it. Now, throughout this lesson, you know, we've emphasized the covenant of, of redemption from the relation of the Father and the Son. Now, we did that because the Bible so clearly emphasizes that. But I do want to make clear that the Holy Spirit is not, you know, absent in all of this. He is an important component in this covenant of redemption. John Frame, in his systematic theology, puts it in this way. He writes, The Holy Spirit is also a party to this agreement for the father and the son agreed to send the spirit into the world to bear witness of Christ, to teach people about him and to declare to them things to come. The spirit will be the author of regeneration who sets God's people free from sin. All the spirit does for God's people was planned before the foundation of the world. So even though the covenant of redemption is a covenant primarily between the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is not ignored in this planning out of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes after the Son, completes his earthly work, as the one who testifies about the Christ and applies the regenerative work of regeneration on the elect. We see Jesus saying in John chapter 15, verse 26 this, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then Jesus says again in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And lastly, we see in Titus chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, Paul, writing this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, as I mentioned, the Holy Spirit is not just, you know, an, you know a, a bystander, bystander in all of this. But he is an active member in the covenant of redemption. Now, as we wrap all of this up, bring all of this to a close for today, hopefully I was able to demonstrate to you from the scriptures the fact that there was a covenant established by the members of the Trinity for the benefit Of the elect. Even though there is not one express statement in the Bible that defines the covenant of redemption for us, there are plenty of passages, as we just saw, that clearly point to that truth. The Bible clearly affirms that God the Father elects a people into Christ and sends the Son to accomplish all that is necessary to secure the redemption of those people. In turn, the Son will be exalted to the right hand of God, returning back to the glory which he had from the beginning and rule. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to apply the work of redemption secured by Christ to the elect. In this, not one member of the Trinity is seeking to do anything on their own initiative, but rather in unity to the one goal They all seek to fulfill that one eternal plan that they laid out before the world was created. All for the benefit of the elect, but most importantly, all for their own glory. So this is the covenant of redemption. We'll close here today and next Lord's Day and for the remaining Parts of my lesson, we're going to focus our time and attention now on the covenant of greats and all the things contained within that.